Well, as always, I love you guys. Good morning, church. If you don't know me, my name is David Torres, and I'm stepping in for Pastor Dan today. He was out in Israel with a bunch of our more members from our church. So if you would just keep them in your prayers this week so that they be uh, delivered to us home safely. You know, and just so you guys know up there, my uh, keynote's not coming up. But, you know, so it goes. So I definitely could not come up here without first recognizing mom. So we love you moms, and we want to say happy Mother's Day. And if I can just give you just a quick word of encouragement, it would be this, that there's something very special about the prayers of a mother. And you can find this in, all the way back in church history to St. Augustine, who attributed his own salvation to, of course, the grace of God, but it was by means of the prayers of his mother, Monica. And you find these stories littered in history. Uh, I can even say that that's my own story. Ah, oh, there it goes. And so, just as an encouragement, keep praying for your children, whether they're in the Lord, out of the Lord, or somewhere in between, because there's something very special about the prayers of a mother. And so before we begin, if you would just join me in prayer, uh, ask the Lord for our help this morning. Holy Father, you are great. There is no one like you. Uh, You are worthy of every single amount of our worship and praise and adoration, God, and we come here today to praise you. We come here to hear your word, Lord, and and be uh, lifted up and encouraged, but um, ultimately to lift up and glorify your son, Jesus Christ, who is deserving of all of our worship. And I pray right now that you would open up our hearts and minds to this word, and and I pray for me, Lord, that you would move me out of the way, and that you would send your spirit to speak through me, God, and not let me speak of my own, but let them be your words to your people, that they may be encouraged and lifted up. For your glory, and in the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so I figured what better way to start a Mother's Day sermon than to maybe have a little story about my own mother, right? So I was raised in church, in a Southern Baptist church to be precise, and we had certain traditions as Southern Baptists. One of them was that the choir would actually stay in the background for the entire service. They would be up here, not like our worship team where they actually depart and then they'll come back later. They would be up there for the entire service. And so my mother, being a single mom, she was actually in the choir, but there was a little dilemma for her because what do you do with a six, seven-year-old boy in, in church? And back then, we had Sunday school first, and then everybody went to church. We had all the children in the church. I, I see the look, like, what kind of archaic first-century church did you belong to? No pagers. Can you believe it? How did we survive, right? You know, so usually I was a pretty good kid. I, I mannered well, and, and my mom would ask certain men from the congregation if they can just kind of watch over me while she'd be up there. But for some reason, it was this day, and I, I don't know what, what it was. Uh, maybe it was, you know, I grabbed too many donuts. You know, as Baptists, we love our donut ministry, right? So I grabbed a bunch of donuts, probably got sugared up, sat next to this man, and, and as the preacher was up there preaching, I reached over as he had his Bible laid open on his, his lap, and I tore a page of the Bible right out. Yes, the terror that can be heard from around the world. And my mother saw the whole thing from up on that stage. And she looked at me, and everybody knows that look that a mother gives. It's the death stare. You're going to die. You're going to die. Right? And I looked at her. I saw it. I knew, I knew what it meant. But yet, I kept trying to reach over and rip out pages of this guy's Bible. I don't know what got into me. And so, kind guy, he tried to calm me down. I would have been pretty mad, but he tried to calm me down, and he closed his Bible. But that didn't stop me from harassing this poor guy. I kept pulling his beard. And then pulling his earlobes. And then eventually my mom gave me the super death stare. Like, I'm going to kill you, bring you back to life, and kill you again. 
This is what it came to. But she added something extra special to this one. It wasn't just the stare. She did this. Right? And so I thought to myself, well, I'm down here, and she's up there. What could she possibly do to me? So I did this right back. Oh, yeah. Well, needless to say, church has to end one day, right? And I got home, and my mom whooped me so bad. She turned my gluteus maximus into a gluteus minimus. And to this day, I'm still, I'm still traumatized by it. I, 34 years later, I think I should still call CPS on her for that. You know? But what do we think of when we think of, of God being holy? Do we think of him in that way as like he's distant? He's transcendent, you know, he's away from us. And maybe, you know, the Lord is in the heaven. He does what he pleases, right? Well, I'm down here and I get to do what I please, right? Is that what we think of when you think of God's holiness? And, and there's some truth to that. And the holiness, what it really means, what it's defined as, is that he is set apart. And that's what it really means, is that he's set apart. He's something unique, completely different from all the rest of us. He's up there, we're here. There's, there is a little bit of a distance in that. And when the Bible tries to emphasize holiness... There's a certain way it does it. It's kind of like us. When we try to emphasize, like in a text message, we say thank you, and we put a little period after, right? But when you put thank you with an exclamation mark, it's like thank you. You know, there's an emphasis to it. And in the Bible, they emphasize. There's a way of emphasis and emphasizing these things. For an example, Jesus would say, truly, truly, I say to you. And when he, it was through repetition that this emphasis come. If you hear me say truly, truly, then what I am about to say to you is utmost importance. You better pay attention. The Apostle Paul did the same thing in Galatians 1 when he was warning. He said, those who preach a false gospel should be eternally condemned. Again, I say to you, those who preach a false gospel should be eternally condemned. He, re he repeated it because it was utmost importance what he was saying. But only twice in the Bible do you find this superlative emphasis, this holy, holy, holy. You find it in Isaiah and you find it in Revelation. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And see, above all things, above all of God's attributes, stands his holiness. It's the foundation and the core of his very being. And see, nowhere in the Bible do you ever find that God is love, 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 or God is just, just, just. He is loving, indeed, but it's his holiness. He has a holy love. He can love like nobody else. And his justice, his, he has a holy justice. It's perfect and righteous. And every, every judgment he makes is true. Unlike our courts here, as just as they try to be, they make mistakes. But he is holy, holy, holy. Now, I believe this passage here in Luke chapter 5 gives us some insight in what it means that God is holy and, and what it's like to actually confront this holy God. And then what should our proper response be? And so I'm going to put it up here for you. And just in case, if you want, open up your Bibles to Luke 5. If not, it's right here. I'm sure all you have your Bibles open, right? Okay, great. So a little bit of context in order to really make this miracle and this interaction between Jesus and Peter really stand out. And uh, first thing we're, that we're noted here is that Jesus is at, is at Lake Gennesaret. This is also known as Lake Chinneroth in the Old Testament. And for a brief period of time, it's called Lake Tiberias during the Roman era. But most of us probably are aware of the the name, uh, the Sea of Galilee. And so that's where he's at. He's at the Sea of Galilee. We know that this is somewhat early in Jesus' ministry. Um, Jesus has already been healing people. According to Luke chapter 4, he's been he making, healing people, performing miracles. He drove out a demon-possessed man, and um, he even healed Peter's mother-in-law. 
And according to John chapter 2, his very first miracle was turning water into wine. Some of our favorite, right? And it even notes in John chapter 2 that the disciples were even present at this very first miracle. But see, what we do know and what we gather from all this information is that the disciples, even though they were following Jesus, they weren't really fully committed yet. They were kind of still fishing and following, fishing and following. And so they weren't fully there yet. They weren't fully committed to Christ. And so when we get to Luke 1, chapter, or the very first verse, chapter 1, it says that the crowd there was pressing upon him to hear the word of God. And they were pressing upon him because Jesus obviously was already famous. I mean, when you think about it, you know, you can, you can have a charlatan like Benny Hinn or somebody who's, who can pack a stadium full of people with all his trickery. You have a real bona fide healer here. Somebody who performs real miracles, real healings. You get famous fast. Word spreads quickly. And if you can imagine yourself living in this region, if you were sick or say you had a sick child and you knew Jesus was going to be right there by the shore, you knew where he's going to be at, you would flock to see him and you would be pressing through this, this crowd of people just to be able to touch his cloak just so you can heal. You know, and this is where the, the crowd must have been enormous. Just imagine the crowd. And he was being pressed upon, upon the shore. But see, Jesus had this little dilemma here. They were pressing up on him. And what his goal was, was to preach the word of God. And indeed, these people would be hearing the word of God today from the very lips of God himself, which I can't even imagine. You know, and if it were me and you were pressing up on me like this, I'm like, okay, back up. I'm claustrophobic. It's midday. We're all sweating. And you know what? Dove soap hasn't been invented yet. You guys are a little bit funky. Get away from me. Right? I wouldn't be very gracious, but, but you see, I want you to see two things here that Jesus does. It just shows his brilliance and his compassion for this crowd. And he actually asks Simon, whose boat is right behind him, hey, I need to use your boat as a pulpit. So he gets in the boat. And he asked Simon to pull away from the shore a little bit. And then what this does is it creates a little bit of space from the crowd, not because he's irritated, him, irritated by them like I would be, but because he wants every single person who's in this crowd to be able to hear the word of God. And this is brilliant. Of course, the creator of the universe would know this, that when you are hovered over water, the sound of your voice, the actual sound waves are actually amplified by the water pressure. It turns into a natural amphitheater like a microphone form. And this is what Jesus came to do. You know, he, he came to heal people. He came to drive out demons and such. But his main goal was to preach. It was to preach the gospel. It was to give people words of eternal life. And what John says is that his words contain within them eternal life. And so his primary mission was to seek and save the lost. It was to heal souls, not bodies. And you do that by preaching. Now here's where the story gets a little fishy. Yes, pun intended. Thank you. Jesus tells, tells Simon, put your nets down for a catch after he's done preaching. He says, put your nets down for a catch. And what's Peter's response? He says this, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. Now first, Peter calls him master. Now this isn't a recognition of like you are the master of the universe. This is not that. This is the type of, um, um, he's acknowledging his authority as a teacher. If anything, it's like saying great teacher. You know, and many people who would be teaching in this day, if you had a pupil, they would actually call you master. So this is an affirmation of his divinity. Secondly, when we come to read scripture, we don't really have the tone of voice involved, right? And so what's Peter saying here, what, what was his tone like? Was it, was it master? We toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word, I will let down my nets. Yeah, I can't wait. No, I don't know. Or maybe was it reluctance? Master. We toiled all night and took absolutely nothing. 
That's a word. I'll let down my, let, my nets. I think it happens to be the latter. And because in verse 2 it says they were already washing their nets. And, and you see, this was the life of a fisherman. Here was that they would fish at night. And then during the day they would wash their nets, repair what they needed to do. And obviously they didn't catch anything. So you can imagine how frustrated they were. And, and so for, for Peter, this must have been like, what are you talking about? I know fishing. There's no fish right here. It's midday when the sun's beaming down on the water. You're not going to find a fish here. And our nets surely can't reach any kind of fish. If you probably peered into Peter's thoughts, he's probably like, look, I'm a fisherman. You're a carpenter. Why don't you go make a cabinet or something and I'll handle the fishing, right? I mean, this is how reluctant it is, you know. But Peter, of course, agrees to it. You know, he just heard him preaching and maybe there's some sort of lesson to be learned here. And so he does it. He casts his nets. And sure enough, what happens? Verse 6 and 7. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled the boat so that they began to sink. What an amazing miracle, right? I mean, the nets were breaking. The boats were sinking. And these were no small boats. These were, these were fishing vessels. And we know from Matthew 8 that these, these very vessels carried all the disciples during this storm in, in, in the sea. They carried all the disciples, including Jesus, and probably some provisions and equipment. These are not little canoes. These are, these are fishing vessels, and two of them sinking because of the amount of fish. What an amazing miracle. What an amazing miracle. Verse 8 we get to, it's a little bit perplexing. It doesn't really make sense to us in our natural way of thinking. And it says this, when Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It doesn't make sense, you know, because our usual response when we ever, you know, read anything about some hero who comes along and performs a great feat is like, yeah, hip, hip, hooray, Jesus saved the day, right? And here he is. He performs this great miracle. These guys caught nothing all night. They're frustrated. But here's two boatloads of fish. It should have been joy and celebration. That should be the response. That's typically what we see when we read books and, and see movies and have superheroes. That's, what, that's usually what the, the case is. But not here. This is trauma. Peter says, away from me, Jesus. I want nothing to do with you, for I'm a sinner. And why was his, his response here so dramatic? You know, I mean, he saw the, the water into wine miracle. He saw that. He was there. He, he saw his mother-in-law being healed, you know. And perhaps maybe, you know, Jesus was like a lot of us. When we, we come to look at these miracles, we always try to find a natural way to explain them. You know, maybe, maybe Jesus performed a little sleight-of-hand trick, right? He switched the jars with the water and the wine. You know, maybe that's what happened. You know, maybe Peter convinced himself that that was the case. Or maybe with his mother-in-law, you know, maybe, maybe Jesus knows a little bit about medicine and slipped her a little something. She got better, right? But for this particular miracle, you can't make an excuse. He controlled nature. And there is no sleight-of-hand, there is no amount of knowledge that can perform this type of miracle. And he... And this is when Peter finally realized that this just wasn't a holy man, but this was the holy one of Israel. And it wasn't a joyful experience. It was a traumatic experience, the most traumatic of his life. Because he entered into the presence of holiness and he realized his utter sinful depravity. Now, this is a common experience that we find in the Bible. And in the Old Testament, you'll see Job after he lost everything. You know, and, and, and God finally confronts him. And what is Job's response? About time. 
about time. I'm glad you finally showed up because I got to have a word with you. No, uh-uh, that wasn't Job's response at all. It was this. He said, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Traumatized, soul-ripping. In Judges 13, the Manoah, who's the father of Samson, him and his wife are confronted by God. And Manoah says to his wife, we shall surely die, for we have seen God. Being in his presence, death is imminent. There is no escape. He's going to crush us because we are sinners. Probably the most famous and, and, and intriguing passage in the Old Testament of one of these encounters is by Isaiah. It's found in Isaiah chapter 6. I want to read this entire passage for you. When you, when you read this, keep in mind what Luke is going through, or I'm sorry, what Peter is going through in Luke 5. Let me read this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, 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 there's that triple holy, 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 holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Imagine the terror. Here's Isaiah's response. He said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the, in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now Peter He's going through the same dilemma. He has seen the king, the Lord of hosts, and he is crushed. Woe is me. I am a sinful man. I'm about to be crushed. You know you're in real trouble when you're in the presence of holiness. Because holiness cannot be in the presence of sin, and sin cannot be in the presence of holiness. And Peter can't bear it. He's becoming undone. He's completely unraveled. We find this again in the New Testament. Another example. Mark chapter 4, many of us know the, know the story of when the storm came and all the disciples were on this boat and the storm came and they were, they were worried for their lives, that they were getting the water out of there. They were worried that they're going to drown to death, right? And, then they, and, of course, Jesus is down below. He's just sleeping, like no big deal. He's just sleeping on a cushion, right? But then, the, then all the disciples go to him and, say, and they accuse Jesus. Jesus, don't you care about us? Get up. Help us out. Well, he gets up and he says this. And he awoke. And he rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And look at their reaction. It should be a joyous moment. We're going to live to see another day. Jesus saved the day. No, it's completely opposite. Their fear increased. It says, And they were filled with great fear. And they said to one another, Who then is this? that even the wind and the sea obey him. And it's more translated a little bit better. What kind of man is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? What kind of human being could do such a thing? <coughs> How do we account for these reactions? How do you make sense of this? You know, I think R.C. Sproul, he has, a, he has a great quote here, and, um, and he has a book called The Holiness of God. If you've never read this book, it is life-changing. I highly recommend it. And he has a, a chapter titled The Trauma of Holiness. And in it, he says this. It was the father of psychiatry, Sigmund Freud, who once espoused the theory that people invent religion out of a fear of nature. We feel helpless before an earthquake, a flood, or a ravaging disease. So, said Freud, we invent a God who has power over the earthquake, flood, and disease. God is personal. We can talk to him. 
We can try to bargain with him. We can plead with him to save us from destructive forces of nature. We are unable to plead with earthquakes, negotiate with floods, or bargain with cancer. So the theory goes, we invent God to help us deal with these scary things. Now, here we are, these day and age, this sentiment is definitely carried on. How many of us have probably heard that, oh, you, you weak Christians, the only reason why you believe in a God is because you need to use him as a crutch. Because you can't handle the harshness of reality. That's the only reason why you believe in this God, right? But I love how Sproul finished this assessment, and he said it like this. It is one thing to fall victim to a flood or pray to cancer, but it is another thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And I'll tell you, I don't think Freud or anybody else espoused this theory ever considered the holiness of Jesus Christ. And here's the dilemma for Peter. This is a dilemma for him. He's standing before the holy Jesus Christ, the, the creator of all, and he knows he's a sinner, and at any moment's notice, he should be crushed where he stands. And that's not just a dilemma for Peter. It's a dilemma for every single human being in here. It's the dilemma for all of mankind. Have you ever considered what is the greatest dilemma that mankind has ever faced? And many of us will say, oh, you know, wars, famines, um, little rocket man in North Korea's tossing rockets again. Maybe we're going to have a nuclear holocaust soon. Is that the greatest dilemma we ever faced? No, not even close. Not even close. The greatest dilemma mankind has ever faced is that God is holy and we are not. Amen. You see, Peter's dilemma is our own. It, it belongs to all of us. But I'm sorry I depressed you all on Mother's Day. But guess what? I have some awesome news, some great news. Look at Jesus' response here. He says, Jesus, he said, Jesus says to Peter, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. From now on, from now on, from now on. Imagine those words. If you feel like you are about to be crushed on the weight of holiness, if you feel that God is, he's there, he's about to terminate you on the spot. But when Jesus says from now on, he's, it's insinuating that there's a future for you, that there's hope, there's something to come, that this isn't the end of you. And he gives Peter this hope, from now on you will be catching men. And it's the same hope that he gives to us because in a few years' time, Jesus is going to be led to a cross. And he's going to take on the burdens and the sins of his people. And where he cries out from the cross, he can cry out to us and he can say, from now on, you are no longer enemies of God. From now on, you are forgiven of your sins. From now on, you are sons and daughters of the Most High God. And from the grave, he cracks open the grave and he, he exits victoriously. And he can say, from now on, you are justified. From now on, death no longer reigns over you. From now on, you have within you the living hope of the resurrection and eternal life. What an amazing from now on statement. It's from now on, from now on. This is the dilemma that is solved. And it can be wrapped up in 1 Corinthians 5.21, where it says, He, that is Christ, became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. You see, what Christ did for us, he took on our sins, but he didn't just leave us there. He actually gave us his righteousness. He made us holy. He gave us something. And when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, he not only takes away our sins, but we are wrapped in his righteousness. We are wrapped in his holiness. And you see, the greatest dilemma we ever faced was solved 2,000 years ago on that cross and in that empty grave, and that by faith in him, we are made holy. And that's what he says. From now on, you are holy. Peter knows this. He writes this later on in his epistle. He says that those who are in Christ, we are a holy nation. 
We're a holy priesthood. And see, we become holy by the virtue of Christ's holiness. For those in here, if you don't know Christ, if you're apart from Christ and faith, I ask you, are you, are you looking up to him as he's, he's up there? I'm down here, I'm just shaking my fist at him. Well, what are you going to do when Christ returns and you have to stand before this holy and glorious God? What are you going to do? I know what you're going to do because the Apostle Paul tells us, he says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord. That's what you're going to do. I don't care if you're the hardest atheist in the world. Because when you stand before the holiness and the majesty of God on that day, you will not be able to help but bow your knee to him. And you'll say, they were right, Jesus is Lord. But if you repent and trust in Christ today, you will one day join us and you will be able to bow your knee before this holy majestic God and you will say it with victory that, yes, Jesus is Lord. And I just beg you to take on faith in Christ before you actually have to be presented before his holiness. There's three quick applications to this. Now, how are we to really understand the weight of the gospel apart from the holiness of God? How can we really do that? Because the good news is only good news if we really understand the bad news. You know? But how bad is the bad news? You know? See, I, I work in healthcare, and so I hear diagnoses every day. And, you know, fortunately for me, I work in orthopedics, so pretty much it's, it's not that bad. You know, hey, sir, you broke your arm. You'll be, in two months, you'll be healed up pretty good, right? But if you go upstairs and you go to oncology, sir, I'm sorry, you have cancer. Some pretty bad news. But if that man comes back a month later into his appointment and he says, and the doctor tells him, you're going to be healed. We have a treatment for you. That's some great news. You see how the, the good news is amplified when you truly understand how bad the bad news is. But how do you know how bad your sin is? Because I've heard many of people, many people say, I'm not that bad. I'm not that bad of a sinner. You know what? I've never murdered anybody. I take care of my family. I go to work every day. Right? But have you ever compared yourself to the perfect holiness and righteousness of God? Have you ever used that as a standard? And just like we're coming off this if-then series that we've had a couple of weeks, if God is holy, then the most minute sins that we carry in our heart are cosmic treason on the highest level that are deserving of death on the spot. And if it is true that we are utterly that sinful, well, man, the good news of Jesus Christ just became the greatest news you've ever heard in your life, doesn't it? It is not just good news. This is the most amazing news you can hear. So how can we understand the gospel in light, apart from God's holiness? Well, I don't think we can truly get the full weight of it. Number two, Jesus' response here to, to Peter, he says, I'm going to make you a catcher of men. This is interesting because he completely changes Peter's identity. You know, like most men in here, I think as men, also women, if you're a career-minded woman, this very much applies to us, right? We identify ourselves by, by our occupation. You know, every guy that gets together, we all kind of hang out. What's, you know, we kind of get to know each other. What's the first thing you ask? Oh, what do you do? You, know, you don't respond, oh, I like to ride my bike with my kids. No, we know what you mean. We, what do you do for a living? And we identify ourselves by this. And here Christ changes, changes our identification. He changes our identity. And for Peter, it was pretty amazing. Check this out. He's, he actually said, you're going to be a catcher of men. And so Jesus' occupation was to be a fisherman. And his occupation was to catch fish in order to kill them, right? But now Jesus is saying, you have a new occupation. Your, your occupation is to catch men in order to give them life, right? 
And this is what Jesus does. He calls us to a holy vocation. We should no longer consider what we, we think is our career. Are you, do you have a career as a doctor, a lawyer, a businessman? Any of those things? No, that's our, that's our job. We have a holy vocation. Our career is to follow Christ and to make disciples. That is our career. In verse 11, the final one here, it says this, And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. They left everything. Now, what this does not mean, I don't, I don't believe this means here. If you took the whole counsel of God, you cannot come away with this and say that. In order to follow Christ, you have to sell everything you have and, and get rid of all your possessions, nothing but the shirt on your back, walk around the streets, preach the gospel. I don't think the Bible teaches monasticism or asceticism in that kind of sense where you just have no worldly possessions whatsoever. I think we are given those as gifts to enjoy. But for the particular calling for these disciples, that's exactly what they were called to do, is to leave everything in order for them to become apostles. And if that's your calling, if you feel that that's your calling, well, God bless you. I hope he, he blesses you in that endeavor. But I don't believe this is a general calling for every single Christian to follow Christ. However, I do believe there is a general call here for all of us. And it is the sense that we must be ready and willing at any given moment to give up everything to follow Christ. And that's hard because I know who I'm preaching to right now. I'm preaching to the American church, right? And this is the most prosperous church age in the history of church. Most of us are going to go home today and we're going to enter our air-conditioned vehicles and we're going to go have a nice lunch with our moms, maybe go home, uh, sit on our plush couches and watch the game on the big screen, right? It's nice. But what if tomorrow you go to work and your boss says, I need you to sign this. In order to work here, you have to affirm certain things that go against your religious convictions. In, in essence, denying Christ. Could you do that? Could you give up your job, which means that you'll lose everything? Would you be willing to do that? The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Can you finish that sentence? Blessed be the name of the Lord, regardless? I hope you can. I hope I could. I hope we can have the courage to do so. But how do we do that? And I think... We need to feed ourselves the truth of this gospel every single day. And that God, who is infinitely holy and majestic and perfect and righteous, was willing to give up his infinitely holy, perfect, and majestic son. He gave up everything in order to make us holy. Now, if he was willing to give up everything in order to make us holy, maybe, perhaps, we should be willing to give up everything as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you, and we thank you, God, that you are holy. There is no one like you, and we praise you. We thank you for your son, his work on our behalf. And I pray that you give us the courage to be able to give up everything, even if it means giving up our homes and all our possessions, God, because to obtain Christ is our greatest treasure. And so we ask that you give us the courage to, to remember that daily and feed ourselves that gospel truth. In Christ's blessed name we pray, amen.